Research shows alarming trends in mental health among transgender youth. In 2016, a study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health by Veal et al. reported that Canadian transgender youth were nearly 10 times as likely to experience depression compared to the Canadian population as a whole. A 2019 study by Toma et al. found that transgender youth experienced suicidal ideation at more than twice the rate of their cisgender peers. These youth were also more likely to attempt suicide and engage in non-suicidal self-harming behavior. Opponents of trans rights have used these statistics to discourage societal acceptance of trans people, suggesting that being transgender is inextricably linked to poor mental health. But is that true? No, no, that's not true. Let's just get that out of the way right off the top. It's not true at all. Okay, cue the music. My name is Jim Newman. I'm a final year medical student at the University of Manitoba's Max Rady College of Medicine, and today I'd like to talk to you about trans health, and specifically some research from the last decade investigating the mental health of transgender youth who are supported in their gender identity. But first, let's get some definitions out of the way so that we're all on the same page. We'll start with transgender, often abbreviated trans. A person is transgender, or trans, if their gender identity, the gender that they know themselves to be, does not align with their gender assigned at birth, sometimes called their birth sex, although that terminology is problematic for reasons that are beyond the scope of this show. For example, a child who was assigned female at birth, but knows or discovers himself to be a boy, would be transgender, or simply trans, specifically, a trans boy. By contrast, a child who was assigned female at birth and continues to identify as female throughout her life would be cisgender, or cis, or more specifically, a cis girl. Next, we'll cover transition, which refers to the process by which a transgender person brings their outward gender presentation into concordance with their gender identity. This transition is most often viewed through either a medical or surgical lens, but the research that we're discussing today emphasizes the social aspect of transition which involves the adoption of a name, hairstyle, clothing, and pronouns associated with an individual's affirmed rather than birth gender. In the most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or DSM, the outdated diagnosis of gender identity disorder was replaced with gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria refers to the feeling of discomfort or distress that many trans people experience as a result of the incongruity between their internal gender identity and either their anatomic sex or the social gender expectations that they experience in daily life. The goal of transition is to minimize or eliminate gender dysphoria. But it's important to note that a person can still be transgender regardless of whether any social, medical, or surgical transition has taken place. Now let's turn to the research. I began this show by highlighting some troubling research into the mental health of transgender youth, who are at significantly increased risk of poor mental health outcomes compared to their cisgender peers. Happily, there is a robust and growing body of evidence suggesting that early access to medical transition, including gender-affirming hormone therapy, has a significant and consistent positive impact on mental health and psychological functioning resulting in significant reductions in depression and suicidality. 
However, medical transition is not appropriate in every case. Some trans youth aren't ready for it, or they're not interested in medical transition. And some parents understandably worry about the irreversible nature of some of the changes brought by gender-affirming therapy if their children later decide to detransition. Though it is important to keep in mind that undergoing a natural puberty also entails irreversible changes that trans children may come to regret. There's also a small number of medical conditions that are contraindications to hormone therapy, and there remain significant barriers to access medical transition for trans youth, including financial and even legal barriers in some jurisdictions, including many American states. A supported social transition, in which, with the support of family, teachers, and peers, a trans child adopts the pronouns of their affirmed gender alongside changes in dress, hairstyle, and often name, is not only a typical precursor to medical transition, it can also serve as a completely reversible way for the child to try on a new gender identity and allow caregivers and peers a chance to acclimate to the change. With all of these challenges in mind, the core question that I want to address today is whether a supported social transition is associated with improved mental health in transgender youth compared to those individuals who have not socially transitioned. To answer that question, I'll turn to two studies. The first, by Olson et al., was published in the journal Pediatrics in 2016. The second study, by Derwood et al., was published the following year in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. Together, these papers demonstrate that trans youth who are supported by their parents and schools are not at increased risk of depression compared to their cisgender peers, suggesting that poor mental health among trans youth is not actually caused by their gender identity, but that it is instead the result of harassment, discrimination, and a general lack of support. To have that aspect of yourself, of your identity, of your very being challenged by people who know nothing about you all the time, even if you're in a very supportive environment, that's hard. If you're not in a supportive environment, it's devastating and overwhelming. And that's why there are those statistics about rates of attempted suicide for trans youth. It's not because being trans makes you more likely to want to do that. It's because of how people sometimes treat trans people. That's Marissa McCool, a trans podcaster and activist from the United States. We'll hear more from Marissa later in the show when we discuss how parents and educators can best support trans youth. Before we do that, I'd like to discuss the research in more detail. The Olson study asked the parents of 73 socially transitioned trans children aged 12 and under about the mental health of their kids. The parents were tasked with rating levels of depression and anxiety using standardized measures. The authors also looked at the rates of anxiety and depression among both the kids' cisgender siblings and among age and gender identity-matched cisgender controls, and they found no difference in levels of depression. There appeared to be a mild increase in anxiety among trans participants over the cis controls, but this did not actually reach the point of statistical or clinical significance. The authors concluded that, quote, these results provide clear evidence that transgender children have levels of anxiety and depression no different from their non-transgender siblings and peers. Though similar to the Olson study in most respects, the Durwood study looked at a slightly older group of trans youth, up to age 14, who had undergone a supported social transition. It also didn't rely solely on measures reported by parents, also asking the kids themselves to complete these measures. 
And finally, it asked participants to report on measures of self-worth in addition to anxiety and depression. The results were consistent with those reported by Olson. Socially transitioned transgender youth displayed typical rates of depression, and the authors found no difference in measures of depression or self-worth between groups. Again, trans youth displayed a marginal increase in anxiety, though this finding was not significant. As I mentioned, the second study looked at a slightly older group of children than the first, some of whom had also started taking puberty blockers, and a small number of whom had begun medical transition with the aid of gender-affirming hormones. This provided the authors with an opportunity to compare the mental health of these three subgroups. Perhaps surprisingly, they identified no difference between the groups on measures of depression or anxiety. While it was not the aim of the study to identify such differences, and we cannot draw conclusions from these data, it is possible that a supported social transition has a greater positive impact on mental health than medical transition does, at least in the early stages. Having demonstrated that when trans youth are supported in their social transition, the mental health gap between cis and trans youth essentially disappears, the question remains, how can parents and teachers support these kids? Happily, there are expert guidelines available. For parents, we can turn to Supporting and Caring for Transgender Children, a document put together by the Human Rights Campaign Foundation in association with the American Academy of Pediatrics. For simplicity, I'll refer to these recommendations as the HRC guidelines. We can also consult the Expert Consensus Guidelines for Parents and Caregivers, which was created by a panel of researchers, clinicians, parents of transgender and gender nonconforming youth, and transgender individuals themselves, which I'll call the Expert Consensus Guidelines. Both guidelines agree that number one, affirmation is key. They recommend that parents remind their children that they will be loved no matter their gender, and emphasize the importance of using the child's preferred pronouns and chosen name at all times. To quote the HRC guidelines, Affirming, supporting, and loving your child unconditionally makes all the difference in the world. Number two, both guidelines recommend against delaying social transition. Some parents may believe that watching and waiting is preferable to proceeding with a social transition, thinking that their child's transgender identity is just a phase. The HRC guidelines caution that this approach simply prolongs gender dysphoria and can even endanger these children's lives, increasing their risk of depression, self-harm, and suicide. Social transition, by contrast, can provide, quote, tremendous and immediate relief, according to the expert consensus guidelines, helping children become happier, more comfortable, and more at ease. But just as it's important not to delay social transition, it's also important to provide time for your child to explore their gender identity and not rush them into something they're not ready for. The expert consensus guidelines note that, quote, Children who engage in gender nonconforming behaviors or who may reject traditional gender roles are not necessarily transgender. It can be helpful for parents to allow their child to safely explore their gender identity by letting their child engage in gender nonconforming behavior without imposing a specific gender identity on them. Number three, avoid conversion therapy. Sometimes marketed as reparative therapy, conversion therapy seeks to change a child's gender identity to conform to their gender assigned at birth. There is no evidence that conversion therapy reduces gender dysphoria. In fact, it has been shown to cause significant harm, damaging the mental health of trans youth and impairing family relationships. Conversion therapy has been illegal in Canada since 2022. Number four. 
Parents are encouraged to seek support when they need it. The guidelines recommend connecting with groups for parents raising transgender kids, either in person or online. The HRC guidelines also remind parents that family therapy can help them balance their children's needs with their own. In addition to consulting guidelines, we can also talk to trans people themselves. Marissa McCool is a trans activist and podcaster who grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm actually a trans athlete as well, so I'm all over the spectrum of things that people are furious about, apparently. I spoke with Marissa about how her understanding of her own gender identity developed gradually over time. There was something very obviously different about me when I was younger and living at home. We're talking late 90s, early 2000s. My parents thought I was gay. And because of that, they actually set me up on like mentorship dates with a couple of the adult gay people that they knew to sort of maybe see what they could do for me and if I felt more comfortable. So that was pretty progressive for the time, I would say. She notes that while it is important for parents to support their kids after they've come out as trans, many closeted trans kids worry that their parents won't be supportive and consequently delay telling their parents or avoid it entirely. That's why it's important for parents of all children to proactively show support for trans people in general. One way that parents can show their kids that it's safe to come out is by affirming trans people that they see in the media. If you're watching something on TV or you hear a trans person mentioned, referring to them correctly and saying something positive about them, being heard, being seen as affirming of trans people and not making it a big deal goes a lot further than one of those direct, oh, well, if, you're, if you're trans, you can tell us. Marissa did eventually come out to her parents. But by the time that I came out, came out, I was not living at home and hadn't for a very long time. They came around, but it did take a while. Many transgender children face significant barriers in their social transition, especially at school, where school or district policies may actually interfere with their transition. They may not be allowed to use the right bathroom. They may not be allowed to play sports with their friends. They may not be allowed to express themselves. They may not be allowed to be called by the name that they want. Some parents, even supportive ones, may also worry that a social transition will put their child at increased risk of bullying and other forms of abuse, leading those parents to delay their child's social transition. These concerns are not without merit. A 2011 paper found that more than 80% of gender-diverse and sexual minority youth have been verbally harassed because of their sexual orientation or gender expression, and nearly 40% avoid using bathrooms and locker rooms at school because they don't feel safe. Just wearing eyeliner made me a prime target, and I was called things I will not repeat. I mean, I was called the F-slur for the first time at seven. Parents' concerns about bullying are understandable. And a 2023 study published in the Journal of School Psychology did find that identity concealment, that is, delaying or avoiding social transition at school, may reduce bullying in the short term, but at the cost of worse outcomes in the long run. The authors suggest that instead of counseling students to remain in the closet, schools need to work to foster a safer and more supportive environment for all students. Marissa dropped out of high school in 2002 and completed her GED the following year. She told me that while things are hardly easy for trans kids today, 
the environment seems to have become significantly more supportive in the two decades since she was in school. I have noticed a considerable cultural shift and a big difference in how I'm treated. The number of people who are supportive has increased exponentially. So now we'll turn to schools and talk about what teachers and administrators can do to better support trans kids. Making it clear that trans people are welcome there, even if it's just a one-sentence thing on the syllabus that says you're safe here. Or the professor or teacher having their pronouns in the syllabus or introducing themselves that way, whether they're cis or not. Including pronouns in those little bios that teachers make you fill out. Or having the ability to say preferred name or what you would like to be referred to as. If your name is different than what's on the class rolls, if you haven't legally changed your name. Just having those little options make a huge difference. Marissa's advice echoes recommendations made by the American Psychological Association, which has published several sets of guidelines for schools. These guidelines recommend that teachers explicitly identify themselves as supporters and allies of trans, gender-diverse, and sexual minority youth. The APA guidelines also encourage teachers to support the creation of a gay-straight alliance or similar club in their school, and to develop an inclusive curriculum that portrays trans, gender-diverse, and sexual minority individuals, history, and events in a positive light. The APA also recommends that school administrators work to establish district-wide policies to ensure that transgender students are treated fairly across the board. It's important that staff and volunteers are trained appropriately, and a written policy allows a supportive environment to be maintained over time regardless of staffing changes. Specifically, the APA guidelines recommend that policies ensure the following. Number one, students should be addressed by staff, volunteers, and fellow students by their chosen name and pronouns corresponding to their gender identity. Number two, students should be provided access to restrooms, locker rooms, and changing rooms on the basis of gender identity, not their perceived biological sex. This is also a point emphasized by the Schools in Transition guidelines that were developed in association with the HRC Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union. The Schools in Transition guidelines emphasize that while these changes may make some students uncomfortable, at least at first, quote, being uncomfortable is not the same as being unsafe, and school officials have a responsibility to ensure the safety of all students. Similarly, number three, Students should be allowed to participate in sports, either coeducationally, that is, without gender segregation, or on the basis of their gender identity. The Schools in Transition guidelines note that, quote, focusing on the perceived differences between males and females too often obscures the fact that there is great variation even among cisgender males and among cisgender females. Number four. Schools must be vigilant for harassment and bullying on the basis of gender identity. The Schools in Transition guidelines specifically recommend that educators avoid punitive or zero-tolerance policies to address bullying, as research has shown that they do not change behavior and are disproportionately used against trans and sexual minority students, harming the very students the policies are designed to protect. Quote, What this means in practice is that the LGBTQ student who fights back against bullying is more likely to be punished than the student who is the aggressor. And finally, number five, 
Educators and administrators should work with individual trans students to develop a communication plan that spells out who needs to know what information and how that information will be communicated. The APA guidelines remind schools that students' right to privacy includes information about transgender status and gender assigned at birth. That information should not be disclosed to other students, staff, or other members of the school community without the student's express permission. The Schools and Transition Guidelines warn that school information systems pose a privacy risk for trans youth. They cite an example of a substitute teacher calling out students' names off an attendance list as a potential source of inadvertent disclosure, noting that these lists typically list students' legal names. Consequently, the guidelines recommend that school records should reflect the student's gender identity and chosen name, rather than those assigned at birth, to prevent accidentally misgendering students or disclosing their transgender status. While the Schools and Transition Guidelines emphasize the importance of avoiding unintentional disclosure even to a student's own family, they go on to remind teachers and administrators of the important role they can play in facilitating a safe and supportive environment, both at school and at home. When a student chooses to disclose their transgender identity at school, it is important for staff to determine the extent to which the student's family knows and accepts their gender identity, to ascertain how best to support that student. Quote, Addressing the student's needs at school provides a great short-term solution, but where possible, the goal should be to support the student's family in accepting their child's gender identity and to seek opportunities to foster a better relationship between the student and their family. The Schools and Transition Guidelines provide examples of how schools can assist students in navigating the process of disclosure and acceptance, including providing a safe space for discussion between the student and their parents, mediated by school staff if desired, connecting the family to local resources, and helping to educate family members about the potentially catastrophic consequences of refusal to affirm and support their child's gender identity. I asked Marissa if she had any advice for parents and educators that wasn't covered in these guidelines. If I were to add anything else, it would just be let people be who they are and take some of the initiative and learn yourself. It shouldn't be the burden of a kid coming out as trans to educate everybody else. Some of the onus has to be on people who want to be more accepting, who want to learn more, to do that themselves. It may seem like an overreaction if you ask what you think is a simple and curious question and people react badly to it. It may be the sixth time that day they've been asked that question and they're just tired of it. Thanks to Marissa McCool for talking to me for this piece, to Ian James for providing theme music, and to Dr. Natalie Kasaklang for her guidance in putting together this project. Thank you.